Hi, it's good to see you this morning. I was recently in Atlanta, where I caught this cold and sore throat, so pray that my voice holds out through the rest of the service. But when I'm with my little grandkids, I do a lot of singing. They just love my voice. They're just mesmerized. Nobody else reacts that way to my voice. And they don't really care how I sound, whether I sing on key or even if I know the words. Babies, little ones, don't really care about any of that. So when I was singing this last time with my three-year-old granddaughter, I was singing the story songs, and she loved five little monkeys jumping on the bed. But then I thought, I better not sing that, because she's the kind of kid who will want to reenact that one. We sang five little speckled frogs sitting on a speckled log. And then I started to sing Little Bunny Foo Foo, but I couldn't remember the words, so I had to make them up as I went. The only part I remembered was the bopping them on the heads. So I asked my daughter if she remembered that song, and she did. She remembered all the words. But she said, you know, I picture that song at Mount Hermon, and that doesn't seem right. Which it doesn't, right? It's bopping them on the head, it's a good fairy, they're turning them into goons. Um, so we laughed about it, and we figured out it was a family friend who taught us that song, and she was at Mount Hermon with us. But our minds make connections like that, sometimes in ways we can't even explain. And I thought about that with our sermon series as we're talking about love and the connections our minds make about what love is. We've been exploring the love command and what Jesus and the New Testament writers actually said about love. And while we know we're supposed to love others, we don't always know how to do that. We most often associate love with romance, maybe sappy movies or warm, soft feelings. So what do you picture when you think about love? The thing that pops into my mind is those little Valentine candy hearts. I don't know why, it must have been a childhood crush or something, my first association with love. But when you ask me what I think about, when I think about love, that's the picture that pops into my mind. What about the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13? What do you picture when you hear that? Love is patient. Love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Do you picture flowers and romance, maybe a wedding? Because that's where we most often hear those words, at a wedding. But that's not Paul's intent at all. When Paul wrote those words, he wasn't telling us to have warm, sentimental feelings. He wasn't writing anything romantic. He was writing to a church that was judgmental, self-centered, divided, and sinful. And 1 Corinthians 13 is the culminating chapter of Paul's instruction about how to love one another in the church when it's hard. So today we're going to look at the backstory for chapter 13, which begins in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And here Paul addresses a specific problem in the church at Corinth, and he gives them practical guidance and a timeless truth for how we're to love and treat others in the church. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. 
For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come, came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we, li we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that the, when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. The specific situation here is about food offered to idols. And in verse 10, Paul says that the problem is eating in an idol's temple and eating food that is sacrificed to idols. And since we don't understand anything about that, in order to picture what's going on, imagine you're a Christian living in Corinth, the city of Corinth, in the first century. Picture a busy harbor city that lies on the land bridge between the mainland and the peninsula. It's a busy city. There's a thriving intellectual and cultural life. There's a diverse mix of people, Greeks, Jews, Romans, immigrants from all around. And they're all striving to be somebody, to get ahead, to be rich or powerful or famous or influential. And your church is diverse. These people are in your church. And most of the people used to be Gentiles that worshipped idols, that went to the idol temple. Most of them became Christians after having lived a life of worshipping idols. So you probably grew up observing pagan religions with many gods and goddesses going to many shrines and temples. It was a part of regular life, what everybody did. And your family would take animals to sacrifice at the temple so that the gods would favor you, and then you would eat the food, and there'd be lots of food so other people would eat it, and the leftover food would be sold in the marketplace. And it was a little bit less expensive than the regular meat. So most of the time, whenever you ate meat, whether you were at someone's house or at a celebration or a banquet, most of the time it was meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And any time you went to a celebration or a banquet, it would be in the idol's temple. There were no restaurants or banquet halls. The place where people went, the center of social life, the place you went to eat was in an idol's temple. So you went to the temple to eat, to associate with others, to maintain civic and political life, to maintain your business associations. And social events would be purely social. But whenever you ate at the temple, you would beware, aware of the idols. You would see people honoring the gods and goddesses. You would hear the priests chanting. You would feel the dark presence of idols and gods and goddesses. And there were lots of drinks loosened morals, sexually explicit entertainment, and prostitutes nearby, so that the sights, sounds, and smell of idolatry and the immoral environment 
would make you feel guilty. Just being there as a Christian would feel wrong. It would weigh on your conscience. And you could see how this could be a big problem for some Christians. It's a little like the question many of us have struggled with in going to a church or a service of a different faith. Many of us have gone to Buddhist funerals when our grandparents passed away and the funerals were held at Buddhist churches. And we wondered, should I walk up to the front, offer the incense and bow to the priests and the statues? And my answer to that question was always, it doesn't really matter because you know who God is. You know it's just a ritual. You're not doing it to worship the Buddha or to do what they're doing. You know. And that made sense to me because that didn't have any meaning to me not having grown up as a Buddhist. But Paul might tell me I was wrong. And he pushed back against the Corinthian teachers and their knowledge. Paul quoted their slogans in verses 1 to 4 when you see those quotation marks. It's the slogans the Corinthian teachers repeated over and over. And they said things like, we all have knowledge. An idol is nothing. We know what's real. But Paul said knowledge was not enough. For those who had grown up in Buddhist families, going to the Buddhist services, the impact of the incense and the bowing would be different for them than it was for me. It might make them feel wrong and guilty and weigh on their conscience. It might be a little like being a recovering alcoholic at a party. For most of us, having a beer or a glass of wine enhances social events. But for a recovering alcoholic, it feels different. It feels wrong and tempting. Or it might be a little like deciding what movies or video games or apps are appropriate. You can argue for what level of sexual innuendo or violence or consumerism is okay. But should you make fun of your friends who are a little more squeamish or hesitant? And what about wearing masks and going to gatherings and getting vaccinated? Think about how COVID divided churches and Christians. Some people were certain that the church should worship right away and they didn't need masks because you should have faith and not fear. But others were just as certain that those people were selfish and sinful. Right? They should listen to science and safety. But the thing that complicates it all is that you were always on the side that matched your political leanings. The, the side that you wanted to identify with. So now are you thinking about what the right view is and how stupid and weak those other people were and how right you were? In verse 1, Paul says, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. See, think about how like the Corinthians we are. Don't think about masks and vaccines anymore. Come back to 1 Corinthians 8. But our knowledge makes us feel morally superior. We think we're right. And the Corinthian teachers argued that what you know is all that mattered. But they used it as an excuse for their selfish behavior. They said it because they were thinking about themselves and how they wanted to fit in with the culture. How they wanted to maintain their freedom to do whatever they want, to eat whatever they want. And they had that freedom and that right. But the problem was to prioritize knowledge over love and to disregard the impact it had on other people. In Christ, in the body of Christ, 
It's not about our rights and our freedoms and what we want. It's about loving one another. And in chapter 8, Paul says, be careful in verse 9 that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. And then in verse 13, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. And Paul would give up his rights and his freedom if it would have a negative impact on someone who is trying to follow God, who is pursuing faith and obedience. And while it might mean nothing for you to eat at an idol's temple or to offer incense or to watch a movie, how does it impact the people around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ? Verse 1 says, Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And let's first agree that knowledge is a good thing, right? With an election coming up this week and with election deniers and conspiracy theories in the news, we have to agree that knowledge and truth and facts are not disposable. When you post on social media or forward an email, verify that it's true. Don't just post something because it's interesting or provocative or cute. Knowledge is a good thing. And for us as Christians, knowing the Bible, knowing what we believe is important. It's critical to our spiritual growth. Knowing Bible verses, reading the Bible, memorizing verses is life-giving. Aspiring to teach God's word, to know it well enough to teach it is a noble thing. Knowledge is good but it can make you puff up with pride. It can make you think more highly of yourself than you ought to. And it can make you feel powerful, superior, judgmental, and dismissive of others. And we all know people like that, right? They're in your workplaces, at your family gatherings, in the church, maybe even in your small group. So don't be that person. The one that has all the answers can spout off all the Bible verses, but is impatient and insensitive towards others. We all have to guard our hearts and minds against thinking knowledge makes us better than others, or that a lack of knowledge makes us less than. Love builds up. This is the timeless principle Paul gives us here in chapter 8. Love builds up. This is what guides our relationships in the body of Christ. When we love one another, we think about what others need to grow. We sacrifice our freedoms and our rights for the sake of others. And we don't just think about what makes us feel good, what blesses us, but what blesses other people. And Paul goes on in this section of 1 Corinthians to talk about spiritual gifts in chapter 12, and then about love in chapter 13, and then about more problems in the church in chapter 14. And in this section, he's talking about using our gifts to bless others, to love others. We all have spiritual gifts, and when we find them and we use them, we feel good. We feel blessed, but they're not just for us. God gives us gifts for the common good, for the sake of others. And we use our gifts and abilities not just for ourselves, but to build others up. That's the way we express love. We serve and teach. We speak words of encouragement and grace. We reach out and support others in tangible ways by providing guidance, help, hospitality, by giving. We use our knowledge and wisdom to help others discern God's truth. 
We use our faith and our prayer gifts to serve others. And whatever gifts you have, that's a way for you to build others up. That's how we're to relate to one another in the church. Many of you know or have heard of Dr. Henry Cloud. He's a Christian psychologist, a leadership expert. He's the author of the book Boundaries and many others. But long before he was world famous, when he was in college, he was on a golf scholarship, aspiring to be a professional golfer. And he had a great promise. But then he had an injury that destroyed all his dreams. And he said he went into a severe depression, lost all sense of meaning, felt empty and lost. He had left his childhood faith behind when he went to college, but he prayed to whoever was out there for healing. And nothing happened. But later he was invited to a Bible study and then eventually introduced to a seminary student who had discipled him and then to a supportive small group and then to counseling. And at some point on that journey, he realized he wasn't depressed anymore, that he felt good about life. And in his book, How People Grow, Dr. Cloud says this, God had changed my life, but God had not supernaturally zapped me when I sought healing. God's supernatural healing seemed like plan A to me. I had wanted God to touch my depression instantaneously and heal me. Instead, he used people to help me. And I came to call this God's plan B. I thought when God used people to heal, it was the inferior plan B. I was grateful, but somewhat disappointed to only get the plan B healing. And then one day I made a discovery in scripture that changed my way of viewing plan B. I read Ephesians 4.15. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And I could not believe it. I read the verse again. Not only was it true that God uses people, but this was not plan B or second rate at all. In fact, people helping people was plan A. The Bible said so. Not only that, but it was not just people doing it, it was God himself. God was working directly through people when they were helping me. So plan B was the original plan A after all. I had been waiting for God to give me his grace through supernatural zapping. He was giving it to me through his people. <clears throat> I was waiting for him to speak to me directly. He was speaking to me through his people. I was waiting for him to give me directions in life. He was the strength behind the direction people were giving me. I was waiting for him to heal my depression. He sent special people to comfort me. Think about all the people God has used to build you up. We are those people. We are the people God uses to give grace, encouragement, direction, strength. That's us. That's what we do. We are the whole body that grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. It's us. It's you and me that God uses to help people grow, to bring healing and strength and guidance and direction. And that's an overwhelming responsibility and an incredible privilege. And as you lean into that responsibility and that privilege, God uses you. As you have conversations after church, as you talk to people over meals or in small groups, as you send emails or texts of encouragement, in all those ways, you are the one 
God uses to build others up. And as you follow him, God works through you to bring grace, to bring healing and hope. And this is how God, how Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 wants us to think about relationships in the church through the lens of building up others. We all have gifts and abilities that benefit us. But loving others is the choice to see the needs of others and to respond. And for some people, this sounds easy. Some of you are gifted in encouragement and helps, and it's easy for you to do that with people. But for others, it requires work, thought, effort. We have to think about our limits and our boundaries and what it'll cost us in time, energy, money. Building others up requires sacrifice and giving. It requires taking initiative and reaching out. It means paying attention, noticing, and responding to what we see. In his book, How People Grow, Henry Cloud points out four particular roles we play in helping others grow. And these are the ways we build others up. Connection. We are created for relationship and to be connected with others. And people connected to others thrive and grow. People isolated and unconnected struggle. And when we reach out to people and make connections, we build them up. Discipline and accountability is another way we help people grow. And you might not think about that as a part of your regular relationships, but whenever I see a need that I need to work on or something I need to do better, when I talk about it, I'm more likely to follow through. And whenever we talk about what's real and we ask each other how we're doing and we pray for each other, we help each other develop discipline. We can't develop discipline by ourselves. We need people. Sometimes we ask people to hold us accountable and to check up on us. But a lot of times it just happens naturally in good relationships. Then there's grace and forgiveness. We're all trying to belong and to fit in, to make people like us. We all need people to help us feel like we're doing okay, that we're accepted. And when we experience grace from people, we're better able to experience it from God. And then support and strengthening. We all need support when we're going through tough times. It comes in many forms, so encouragement, listening, giving advice, prayer. It comes in person or online through emails or through tangible help, like providing meals or doing chores, just helping with whatever's needed. Love builds up. And Paul is speaking specifically about relationships in the church. And one of the best places in the church for that to happen, for those four things to happen, is in small groups. It's in small groups, in the best small groups where trust develops. And we're able to talk about all these things to help each other grow, develop discipline, receive grace and support and strength. In one of my small groups, a person shares often about how she tries to help people. And sometimes it's really hard because those people don't appreciate it. Sometimes they complain. And I think when she shares with us and she's able to vent, we help her just because she's able to talk about it and we understand and we encourage her and pray for her. Another person in my small group shares her desire to return to church in person and she craves being able to worship with others but she lives with someone who has immunocompromised health. So she has a concern for that and she struggles with that. And even though I 
encourage all of you to come in person. I understand this tough balance she's facing, and we talk about it, and we ask her how she's doing, and we encourage her to keep wrestling with it. Another person in my group recently invited me to lunch, and she told me that I had said something in the group that concerned her, but she wasn't sure whether to ask me about it in front of everyone. So she invited me to lunch, and she asked, how are you doing with this? Are you okay? And that was such a blessing to me that she was caring enough to invite me to lunch and brave enough to ask me and to make this space for me to explore this further and to talk about it, to be built up. Building others up feels vulnerable. We have to trust each other enough to be honest and to take risks. We put ourselves out there, and sometimes we feel like we're out on a limb, like we're not really sure this is the right thing to say or do. It can feel intrusive, and we wonder if we should just mind our own business and let it go. It costs us something to go there, to reach out, to express care, to ask questions, to encourage and build up. It's so much easier to criticize and complain than it is to encourage and build up but it's so worth it. Some small groups stay on the surface, on the knowledge level, where it's safe. They enjoy each other, but they miss out on real trust. Don't let your small group become a place where you just show off what you know, or just a social gathering. Ask God to help you talk about what really matters and to respond to each other with love that builds up. I recently read a novel about four siblings and their families. And it's not about the Bible, it's not a Christian novel or about church at all. But this thought struck me and seemed to apply so well to 1 Corinthians 8. Author Tara Conklin says this. This is a story about real love, and she's talking about her novel. True love, imperfect, wretched, weak love. No fairy tales, no poetry. It's about the negotiations we undertake ourselves in the name of love. Every day, we struggle to decide what to give away and what to keep. But every day, we make that calculation and we live with the results. This, then, is the true lesson. There is nothing romantic about love. These everyday choices we make about who and how to love are what matters. And that thought really struck me. I wasn't sure whether to share it today because it seems so harsh and cold to talk about love as negotiation and calculation. But true love really is in the everyday choices we make about what we can give and what we can do. Love is not just a warm, gooey feeling. It's an action. It's the actions we take in the everyday choices we make. And you might be thinking that the takeaway today is, I'm going to love others more. I'm going to build them up. But that's really too general, too big. I hope your takeaway today is to think about the everyday choices you make. How do you want to build others up in love? Love is in the everyday choices we make to build others up with our families, with your kids and your spouse, in your workplace, but especially for Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, especially for us in the church with fellow believers. God created you for community, to love and be loved, to build up, and he will empower you and use you as you serve and use your gifts, as you join a ministry or a group, as you reach out, give, sacrifice, take a step. God will use you. How has God gifted you to love others? 
And how is he challenging you to love more, to trust him more? You will start making choices about whether to love others or not in about 15 minutes when we end the service. You'll start making choices about who to talk to and how long, who to walk past and ignore. And you'll calculate whether to stay safe and shallow, to just talk to the people you know about safe topics, or you'll risk wading deeper into giving love and grace and building up. And today I want to challenge you to make the choice to connect with someone new. So many people tell me there are so many new people at church that you don't know everyone. So today, I want to challenge you to connect with one of those people you don't know. And whether you're one of those new people, and this is your first time here, or whether you're a person who's been here for a long time, I want to challenge you to connect with someone new. Whether you're young in college, or whether you're old and a senior. I want to challenge you. And here's all you need to do. As you walk out of the service, as you get up, make eye contact with those people you don't know. Don't just look away like you usually do. Make eye contact with the people you don't know. And if they don't look away, say hello. And if they say hello back, introduce yourself. You can ask the simple question like, when or how did you start coming to CBC? And listen to their story, share your story, and maybe that'll be it. Or maybe you'll continue talking about other things. You'll find other connections. Maybe you'll make a new friend, start a new relationship. But whatever, you'll feel good about it, and they will too. And you'll have built someone up. And this is the way we begin to become a church, where people are built up where every part does its work. And every Sunday, every meeting, every small group, every encounter, you have the opportunity to build others up, to reach out and connect, to give grace and encouragement. As we close today, ask God to open your eyes and your heart to others, to build others up, to whatever next steps he's putting in your mind and heart. God is faithful. He created you to love and to be loved, to be in community with relationships that build you up. He built you up through all the people in your lives. And he calls you to build others up here in the church, with the body of Christ, with your fellow believers. And he will be faithful to empower you and go with you every step of the way. Let's be a place where the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let's pray.